Okay, well, jumping back into Matthew after Easter, um, we, we really have heard some hard teachings, I think. If you remember, in chapter 16, Peter kind of confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's huge. So that's kind of saying you're the one that really the world has been waiting for to bring redemption. You're the one. You are the one. And then Jesus, if you remembered, quickly said to him, but the Son of Man must suffer many things in Jerusalem and be killed. Now that would have really thrown a wrench into their understanding of what this Messiah is. The Messiah is supposed to be the victor, the conqueror, the general, to lead the people of God into the peace and the prosperity that he intended. So that was the intention of it. And now the Son of Man has to die Well, Jesus even complicates it further because following that, he says, listen, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. Well, now you can just, I think you should be able to feel the discouragement and the despair bleeding into this idea of being a disciple. It's hard to be a disciple when you're giving this kind of teaching this kind of idea that I have to deny myself and take up my cross and follow. This is what I love about the, this is what I love about the, um, the flow of Scripture. When he brings a hard word to us, it's often softened with grace following. And you know, we go from that chapter 16 where it is a hard word and you are being called to be disciples that he brings the grace of 17 in. And he kind of, he reveals to us, Jesus is going to reveal himself to us in a way that's going to excite our obedience to be a disciple. He knows it's a hard word. He knows it's difficult to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow. And so he reveals himself to us and his beautiful worth so that we want to follow him in spite of the cost. We choose to follow him. We would rather do nothing but follow him. And he's going to do that for us today as he reveals to us his great glory. So I want to look at this passage in two pieces. One, I just want to unveil Christ for you, if I can. I consider this an eternal privilege to just explain to you these little truths that Jesus is giving of himself as he reveals himself to us. And then at the end, then I'm going to make some application for the Christian. Like, what do we do in light of this? I want this to be more than a history lesson. This is something significant, that it changed the lives of these men who were flagging at discipleship, and it made them strong. This is what I pray it does for us, that it helps us to engage in this call to follow with a joy and an excitement and a zeal. So read with me, if you will, uh, Matthew 17. So it's going to be the unveiling of Christ for the purposes of following him in faith and joy. 17.1, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah, that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Okay, there is too much to cover, clearly. So we're just going to draw out of it what we can, and it should be plenty for us to think about. First thing that we see is Jesus is revealing himself to be the divine king. The divine king. This glory is being displayed. Notice the time marker here. After six days, this is after six days when Peter had confessed that he's the Christ. Then Jesus selects just these three inner disciples, these, these close ones that we see were in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. These three are taken with him. They go to the mountain. They go up to the mountain. Now, we're not, Matthew leaves the mountain unnamed. But the point of it is, he's not going up there to get a view of the valley. He's going up there to reveal something to them that will change them and others who listen to their testimony. It says here that he was transfigured. In other words, his face began shining with the brightness of the sun. That brightness that kind of, you know, you close your eyes to it. You turn away from it, it's so bright. That is, his face shone with the brightness of the sun and his clothes became white. Now, white is kind of an apocalyptic color. It's a color of God, this purity, this power. And, and, and this idea of transfiguration, the word actually means just changing appearance or form. Kind of like the same word is used for when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. But I don't want you thinking that he was transformed. He was not. We will hope to be transformed from this truth. He was transfigured. The difference is he doesn't get better. He doesn't grow holier. He's not becoming more glorious. What's happening is Jesus is literally lifting the veil of his humanity so these three disciples can peer in and see that's the true essence, the true glory, the true beauty and perfections of Jesus Christ. See, when he came in the flesh, the flesh was shrouding his glory. The flesh was veiling his glory. That's the idea of the word incarnation, this enfleshing of glory. Now, when you see this, this picture of his face shining, you may be drawn back to Exodus 34, where Moses would speak with God and his face would shine, that he would have to put a veil over his face when he came down from the mountain. But it isn't the same. It isn't the same. Moses was reflecting the glory of God. Kind of like the moon does to the sun, right? The moon is just a dead rock in space. But when the sun shines its light on the moon, it comes bright. 
And so you're out at night and you see the brightness of the moon. The moon has no inherent brightness. It's a derivative brightness. It's, it's deriving it from the sun. And that's what Moses was experiencing. He was reflecting the glory of God. But what Jesus is revealing to us is that he has this internal glory. He is full of divine glory in every way. He is fully God. There is no limit to his power, beauty, perfections. And just for a moment, he's drawing back the curtain and giving these three men an ability to witness. That is the Christ. Huge, huge. In, in fact, it's a partial, just a simple fulfillment of the promise in chapter 16, 28, when he said, some of you standing here will not taste death before you see the Son of Man coming in his glory, in his kingdom. So they just see just a preview of it. Now, this would affect them. Later on in ministry, uh, John, when he wrote his gospel, much later would say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. Or in Second Peter, his last letter, he's soon to die. He said, and we were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the holy mountain. So th- this is an incredible scene here that Jesus is just for a moment letting us see what no human eye has ever seen before, his absolute glory. So when we hear someone say, or if someone says, I really have a high opinion of Jesus, I have a respect for Jesus, that doesn't do justice to the character of Jesus as he is revealing himself. I mean, this is to deeply impress us. We are to be deeply impressed, overwhelmed, kind of in awe and wonderment. Now, that that is a problem. You know, we often have grown familiar with this idea. And we we don't leave our mouths hanging open when we think about these things. You know, I kind of feel like we trace it out with the kids. You know, when the kids are young, when your kids were young and they began opening presents at Christmas, boy, I tell you, it's fun to watch it. Why? Well, because they're so excited. I mean, they're just, they're pulling apart the paper, they're looking at the gift, the next gift is overwhelming, the last gift, and they're just overwhelmed with awe and excitement, the lights, the trees, all that stuff just, they're just so filled with wonder that it's exciting. But then what happens in time? The next year follows, same tree, same lights, a little nicer presents maybe, and the next year, and the next year, and what happens? Well, it's nice, we love Christmas, but it doesn't have that same joy and excitement and wonderment. And, and I wonder if for us, we haven't lost the same wonderment over what I just read. I mean, if this is true, set it up as a, as a conditional clause. If this is true, shouldn't we be overwhelmed? And why aren't we? Have we become familiar with it? And because we're familiar with it, does it change the power of it at all? I mean, I think about in Hebrews chapter 1 when he says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and by the word of his power, he upholds the whole universe. Just let that just resonate in your soul for a minute. His word is upholding everything we're seeing and existing and well beyond it. His word, his word's upholding your life right now, keeping the atoms together, keeping your heart beating, keeping your mind functioning, your eyes looking. He's doing that all right now. Everything, you're breathing, your arm moving, your mind shifting. He's, do, he's upholding it all. 
because he deems it pleasurable to him, he's keeping it existing right now. This does not leave us in a sense of awe and wonderment. But there's more that he reveals about himself. Notice the two that are, and, and maybe we should repent right now, actually. You know, I'm almost led to repent. God, forgive us for being familiar with your glory. I mean, I don't think many of us are intentionally ignoring it. Many of us have just slipped into this pattern of, we don't contemplate it. We don't behold. How can we be a disciple and, and take up our cross if we don't have such a high view of this Savior, of this King? So remember, your view of Jesus is going to fuel or it's going to diminish right discipleship. Discipleship will be harder if Jesus is really small. If Jesus is really great and powerful, as he is, then discipleship takes on a whole other light. Okay, the second thing we see revealed in here is, is kind of when he's standing there with Elijah and Moses. Now, what is this about? Many of you may know, but you know, Moses and Elijah are kind of the they're the twin powers of the Old Testament. I mean, they were the twin towers of power, I should say. They were the big men. Moses, you know, is the lawgiver. Moses, by the way, was on a mountain with God. Moses did hear from God. Moses saw the backside of God's glory. You kind of see him as, as setting up and helping us understand Jesus. But he was the giver of the law. He was a revered man of God. He gave the law to the people. He spoke for God. But Elijah, Elijah was also on the mountain with God. Elijah also saw some of the glory of God. Elijah also heard from God. And he's kind of representative of all the prophets. He's the guardian of the law. He was the one calling people back. God's people live according to God's word. So when you put the two of them together with Jesus, what these disciples would have begun to see is, you know what? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that the whole Old Testament is pointing to and preparing for. All the promises of God, all the things that God said he would do, are now going to find their yes in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is going to complete the law. And this is exactly what he said. And you remember when we looked at Matthew 5, 17, he said this, I have not come to, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have come to fulfill them. And he will fulfill them. Every jot and every tittle, he's going to fulfill them. So, so Jesus has come. So seeing Moses and Elijah with Jesus, Jesus is going to complete the redemption of God because that's what the promises in the Old Testament were leading up to restoring a people back to God. How's he going to do it? He's going to do it through his death. His death will be restorative for the people to be made into the people of God. Now, why do I say this? Well, interestingly, in Luke's gospel, Luke records what the conversation was. Matthew doesn't. Let me read what Luke records. He says this, And behold, two men were talking with him. So this is in a parallel gospel. So Matthew and Mark and Luke record this scene. And Luke records, he says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just a little side note here. When you look in your Bible, and you, you should have, or I would encourage you to have Bibles with cross-references, that is, the little references to the side of your text. 
And when you look at 17.1, if you look to the cross-reference under 1, you're going to see where, it's, where the same story is referenced in Luke and in Mark. And you can go to those, and it gives a fuller picture of the story. And that's the purpose of all these different Gospels, kind of giving the full picture of Jesus' ministry. Okay, so, so here it is in Luke, he says, and he spoke of his departure from Jerusalem. He's speaking about his death. He's speaking about his death that's going to reconcile men and women to God. Now, what's interesting is that word departure is the word exodus. It's exodus. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure you've got exodus and you've got Moses here. We're supposed to go backwards a little bit to see, to understand this. We want to go back to Moses who led an exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. Remember, he led the people out of slavery. Do you remember the the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost. Then, boom, God led them out through Moses. They went through the Red Sea because Moses was bringing a people who were in slavery to freedom so that they could be restored to the people of God and worship God freely. That was the goal. But that was only a partial goal because we know the history of Israel showed that they continued to fail. But now Jesus is leading another exodus. And he's leading an exodus from sin and shame and guilt so that we can be restored to the people of God. Do you see the picture? It's this exodus, but now it's through the blood of Christ, not the blood of a lamb. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So do you see how the continuity of Scripture is incredible? That the Moses story was preparing us to understand in full measure, the Jesus story. It's incredible. So what this is showing us is that we can be certain about why he came. He was discussing this with Moses and Elijah. It's incredible. Discussing with them that he had to come to die for sins. This shouldn't surprise us. We read this back in Matthew one twenty one when the angel said to Joseph, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Do you see that it's through the death of Christ, taking upon himself our sins and our shame and our guilt, and God bringing a righteous fury on him, that we can walk. We can walk as a child of God, forgiven and freed from guilt, shame, and the responsibility to pay for that sin before God. Interestingly, all the other religions of the world, they offer methodologies to be made right with God. See, when we, when we hear the expression, well, all religions are just different roads up the mountain, it can't be, because they all teach different things. So if they all teach different things, they can't all arrive at the same place. If I give you two different sets of directions to my house, you're both not going to be at my house. So both, all the roads can't go up. So all the religions of the world are the same in this regard, that they offer a methodology of salvation. Christianity is unique in that it offers Jesus. There's no methodology there's a man who has come to bear our sins, to save us. It's a profound difference. It's a profound difference. The Christian here is identified as one who is grateful to this man, this God-man, Jesus. He's both the divine king, but he's secondly a wonderful savior that we see here. I mean, we're grateful for this. We're thankful. I mean, aren't you thankful? When you hear this, doesn't it somehow just take a little bit of the sting out of your own death. Doesn't it, doesn't it remove from you the sting of you facing your own death? 
When Jesus says in Revelation 117, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, I was dead, but I'm alive forever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades, doesn't that take the sting away? Don't you grow more grateful? I want us to be a grateful people. We can look death straight in the eyes because he has, in his death, put your death to death. That eternal separation from God, you will never experience. The Christian will never experience. I mean, that makes me happy. That's why we often sing on Easter, oh, happy day. What a happy day it is. I mean, it is a happy day. If you're not grateful, then ask the Lord for grace to be grateful. I mean, if you're just burdened by the affairs of tomorrow, be grateful. You know, one German theologian during World War II, he was teaching a group of students, young students, and it was during the Allied bombs going off, and the children were absolutely terrified, terrified. And he said this to him. He said, if the last hour belongs to Christ, we don't need fear the next moment. If you know that he has been raised from the dead, the keys of death and Hades, you don't need to fear the next moment. We can rest. He has died for us. We don't have to fear standing before God. We don't have to fear death. Okay, the third thing we see about Jesus that he wants us to see is that Jesus Christ is not just the divine king. That's the first point. He's not just a wonderful savior. That's the second. The third one is that he is the preeminent son. We see this with Peter. Now, now Peter really is a poster child for incremental growth and sanctification. I mean, he says, isn't it good that we're here? So he is plugged into, yes, something unique is going on. Really glad to be here. Now, in this idea of building three booths, Matthew doesn't say it, but both Luke and Mark say he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know. Is that unbelievable? Yeah, we're friends. We're friends, but he's got no clue as to what he's talking about. I mean, he really is encouraging to me because Peter is getting it, but he hasn't gotten it all. He's growing in it. That's the way I feel. It's like you pull back and you pull back and you pull back, and we're gaining an awareness of Jesus, but it doesn't come in one fell swoop that we like to have. And so what's Peter say? He says, I want to build three booths. Now, the reason I think he doesn't get it is because, well, first, I don't think he understands the identity of Jesus. You kind of notice this parody, don't you? One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. There is no parody with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Jesus is of, is of a whole nother order. We just saw that in the face shining like the sun and his clothing as white, this bright white light. There is no parody here. There, there is no first among equals with Jesus. He is uniquely supreme and unique in every way. So I think Peter missed it there. I also think Peter may have missed it wanting to stay on the mountain. Now this we can identify with. We don't want to leave that mountaintop experience. He's thinking, let's build some shelters, kind of draw on our minds back to the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a time of rejoicing. Let's just stay up here and enjoy the glory instead of going back down to the mountain, to do what Jesus said he had to do, which is, I have to go to Jerusalem. Now, when Peter says this, this is when the cloud comes. Now, anytime you see clouds in Scripture, it's rich with Old Testament imagery. Clouds are often God's means of, of declaring and displaying his presence to people. You see the cloud leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. You see the cloud 
coming over the tabernacle. You see the cloud on the mountain talking to Moses. You see the cloud filling the tabernacle or the temple that Solomon built. You even see the cloud leaving when the Spirit finally left the temple. You see the cloud evidence God's divine power and presence. And out of this cloud comes the thundering voice of God. And he's really correcting Peter. He's correcting him. He's affirming Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. What God is doing in these verses is he's identifying, he's re-identifying, he's reconfirming Jesus to them. Right? He's taking from Psalm 2, my son, the son that would be given the nations, that he would dash them to pieces like pottery. He says, this is in whom I'm pleased. Um, Isaiah 42, this is the servant who would be the servant of Isaiah 53 and die for the sins. Listen to him. Listen to him as the words out of Deuteronomy 18 when Moses is promising a great prophet's going to come and, and all the nations have to listen to him. So God is affirming Christ as the unique son of God, the preeminent son. And then you notice after the voice finishes, what happens? There's Jesus. Who's with him? He's alone. He stands alone and gently lifts them up. Isn't that amazing? The touch of such a preeminent son. God has such pleasure. This is why, if you're a non-Christian here, this is why the Christian doesn't mean to sound arrogant when he says Jesus is unique. It's just belief in the word of God as Jesus has been revealed to us that he is, in fact, unique. There is no other name under heaven by which men, women must be saved. So it isn't this claim of arrogance. No, it's just bringing forth the truth as God has revealed the Son. There is no other name. There's no other Savior. There's no other person. There's no other competitor. There's no one to come along later. He is the only one, perfect in every way. So this is how Jesus has revealed himself to, to excite within us this move of greater discipleship. So just for a minute now, well, well let me first address the non-Christian here for a minute. If you're thinking about Christianity, or you're investigating the claims of Christ, or you're not really even sure where you are, um, I, I am always thankful that you're here. And, and I think I'd like to ask you, do you not see this as attractive? You know, we've lived with materialism and naturalism really for the past two centuries about this. We kind of live in this closed world. We're trying to pull God out of life, and we just live for today. And in a life that's lived in a closed universe, that means that God's not part of everything we're doing. It gets kind of, I don't know, it gets kind of stale and boring. When you're on the throne of your life, you begin to, we don't make good gods is what it is, I think. And, and, and I think life gets to be kind of stale and stagnant, such that when you, you know, when you find some new truth of how great and grand the universe is. I mean, that's exciting, isn't it? When the Hubble telescope started putting those pictures out and you see these stars and these nebulae and these constellations just millions and billions of light years away, doesn't it kind of overwhelm you? Or, or some new discovery of a fish that lives 5,000 feet under the surface of the ocean that, that can look in pitch black and see food to eat? Or, or perhaps you're out on a summer evening and, and the storm's coming and, and you see that spider web of of lightning bolts filling the sky, and you kind of feel like, wow, 
you know, the idea of transcendence is really, it lifts our eyes off of ourselves. We're like, wow, it's really kind of exciting in a way. It, It reminds me of how insignificant and how small I am. And this is really... This is really the beginning of becoming a Christian. It's when we begin to realize how small and insignificant we are and how great and grand God is. We begin to realize what we really are broken, unable to save ourselves. We begin to see ourselves in light of, of this transcendent God and we begin to realize how paltry and poor and, and how we're filled with just self-centeredness and poverty. And then we look to this this king that has a face that shines in the brightness of the sun, and yet he lays down his life for us and takes upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt. And and it's by putting our faith in him. In fact, Corinthians says it this way, he who is rich, Jesus, he was rich in glory, he became poor, he took on flesh and blood, became a servant, died on a cross. He became poor that we who are poor might become rich with him. That's how we become a Christian. God says uh, that a contrite and a gentle spirit I will not despise. That brokenness before the transcendence that we see in this text. That's how you become a Christian. And, and, And we do it by just praying, God, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for opening my eyes to the glory of Christ. Save me from myself and deliver me to yourself through Christ. That's how we become a Christian. It begins that way. Have you begun faith that way? Now, for the Christian here, let let me just ask you to consider a few things. And these are the second part of the sermon here in terms of trying to apply it to you. I don't want this to be a history lesson. I I want this to change you. I want you this afternoon to think about this transfiguration and see how it's affecting your life. You know, Paul says, you know, because, and the reason I want you to do this is because Paul tells us, when we behold Christ, we reflect his glory, and that's how we're transformed from glory to glory. So change comes... Through beholding the sun, that is, enjoying the sun, contemplating him. In fact, Richard Sibbs was a a Puritan that spanned the 16th and uh, uh, 17th centuries. And here's what he said about beholding Christ. He says, uh, and he wrote a book, um, uh, he wrote a book, A Bruised Reed. And it is just a classic book, A Bruised Reed. I think we may have it out in the library or the out in the bookstall, and I would encourage you to read it. He has more gems in that than you can imagine. He says, the very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. The spirit that makes us new creatures and stirs us up to behold this servant, it is a transforming beholding. A man cannot look upon the love of God and of Christ in the gospel, but it will change him to be like God in Christ. For how can we see Christ and God in Christ, but we shall see how God hates sin. And seeing the holiness of God in it, it will transform us to be holy. When we see the love of God in the gospel and the love of Christ giving himself for us, this will transform us to love God. So what I want to say is that I want us to begin beholding Christ And then by beholding Christ, we're going to change from glory to glory, and our discipleship will be different. So let me give you some examples of this. So by beholding Christ, as he's revealed himself in this text, it's going to transform you 
and me regarding our view of suffering, for example. It's going to change our view of suffering. This is one of the impediments to growing in discipleship is we're afraid of suffering. We're afraid that we're not going to be able to manage it. We're afraid of what may come our way if we walk in true discipleship. And so it it stalls our discipleship. We're like Peter. He wants to build booze up. He doesn't want to go on to Jerusalem. He'd rather stay up there in the glory land. And it's nicer, it's more comfortable. And yet we find here that Jesus has shown us that the path of glory, or I should say the destination of glory, is along the path of suffering. But here's what we're encouraged, is that the cross does proceed, but it precedes a crown. The cross precedes the crown. That's what we see in Jesus. That's what we're going to see in our own life of discipleship. The good news of this is that, is that Paul says that the present-day sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that is to be ours. So I want you to think of a scale. You know, one of those old-time scales where they have two sides of the scale. And our suffering is like a brick. And it is. It's real. It's legitimate. I don't want to spiritualize suffering. It's difficult. It's troubling. But then on the other side of the scale, just imagine just a, a dump truck dumping bricks on the scale. It would just crush the scale. There's no comparison to the suffering of the present day, to the glory that would be revealed. In other other words, we have to look at our discipleship. We have to behold Christ and see that his suffering led to glory. And so our suffering is going to lead to glory. It's going to help us to endure. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, for this light momentary affliction, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So Jesus is showing us a preview of what's to come, even though he has the cross to go to first. And so for us, it's the same. There's that glory that awaits the Christian but it will be through suffering. Suffering will change and prepare us. So let's not fear it. Let's just behold the Son and see how he, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So it'll change our view of suffering. Secondly, it's going to change our view of death, or it should change our view of death. Listen, when you look at this scene, what do we find? We have Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Now Moses and Elijah, just if you're out of you know, chronological order here. They've been gone a long time. What are they doing there? What are they doing on this mountain? They have been gone for a long time. Moses died. God buried him. Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. What are they doing there? There must be life after death, I guess, right? I mean, they're known. They have names. They have the same personalities. They have full access to Jesus Christ. They have been long gone from planet Earth, but, but they are they. They exist. They're talking with them. There is life after death. I mean, can you grasp this? That there is, a, there is a universe of glory that is existing alongside, over top of our universe right here. That is a reality. I mean, we, we see this in other places of Scripture. You know, Elisha was a disciple of Elijah. And Elisha, at one point, was giving directions to the king of Israel. This is found in the book of uh, 2 Kings. He was giving directions to the, to the king of Israel about where the Syrian army was moving and where they were setting up their camps, and then Israel would attack. Well, the king of Syria finally got, he had enough of that, 
And so he wanted to find out how that was happening. Well, the, the, it fell to Elisha, who was giving these directions. And so he sent his army and surrounded Elisha with his armies. Well, Elisha had a servant, and the servant was kind of scared, kind of threatened. And so here's, here's what we find. So we pick up the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. He says this. He says to a servant, don't be afraid. I love it when I hear that, because it's like, don't be afraid. Well, I got all kinds of reasons to be afraid right now. He says, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of this young man, and he saw, behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's a, there is an existence running contemporaneously with ours, God and his glory. We see the same thing in Revelation chapter 5. When John is taken from space and time, Patmos, and he is brought up into the throne room where they're worshiping God. It's existing at the same time. Do you get that? What I'm saying to you is that discipleship is stimulated by the fact that Jesus Christ right now is in glory, existing, being worshiped right now as we worship him. I remember we had this woman at the church years ago, probably first year I was here, and uh, didn't know her, but she was there in worship, weeping. Generally, every Sunday, weeping. And so I went up to her and I asked if I could help, how I could pray for her. I noticed that she'd been crying, and is there anything I can do? And she had shared with me that she had lost her husband uh, earlier, a believer, and she said, this is when I feel closest to him, because he is worshiping and I'm worshiping at the same time. Same God, same king. We're worshiping together. Do you get that when you come here? We are joining with the thousands in glory worshiping God. I mean, I mean, it, spins, it causes us to think differently about life. We are pilgrims here. You know, Jonathan Edwards in 1733 preached out of Hebrews chapter 13, and he preached this, the, the pilgrim's journey. And one of the points he was making was the pilgrims ponder what they pursue. They ponder what they pursue. They think about heaven. They think about all that is right now in glory. They think about it. They grow in excitement. This fuels discipleship. It moves us to want to follow Christ well. They ponder what they pursue. What are you pursuing that you're pondering over? Does it involve heaven? Do you think about it? Are you caught up in just so much of today's stuff that our minds are stunted and dwarfed over our thoughts of heaven? If we can't think about heaven, then it makes for a very difficult journey for the pilgrim. doesn't really know where he's going. Okay, thirdly, and another thing that beholding Christ transforms, our view of earthly success and power and money and earthly comforts. Listen, we in Western culture have been given many good things, and I don't, I don't despise good things. I don't want to feel guilty. All good things come from God, the Father of lights above. We like good things. But let me tell you, the good things can become distractive to better things, that, that our allegiance and our affections can begin to root themselves into the things of this world that you want whether it's money or success or security or a marriage or children or a perfect relationship, those are fine things to desire. They really are. They're fine things, but they're not fine things to make into objects of devotion. They will not serve you well. 
and they'll not prepare you, and they'll diminish your desire to walk in a radical discipleship, or what I would call a normal discipleship, which to the world seems radical. But what, what is stealing your allegiance? This is what Augustine, the 4th century church father, said about inordinate loves. You know, if I were to love, let me use a, a, a gross example. Gross by that, I mean polarizing, you know, extreme. If I loved Carol's picture much more than I loved Carol, you would laugh that. You, you would just think, that is so foolish. You're, lo- you're loving a picture more, so the value of the picture, there is a value, but I love the value of it more than the picture is worth, whereas I love less that which has a greater value. It's an inordinate love, and you would say it's foolish. What are you pursuing now? It is not worthy of your devotion and allegiance. What is occupying your mind? What is so valuable to you? So consider this. Let me just give you two quick ones, two more so many more, so many more. Beholding Christ will transform our view of missions and ministry, missions and ministry. What I mean by this is that knowing that Christ has pulled back the curtain, we see the glory that's coming. It's calling us to be involved in engaging in missions. His name's worthy to be declared. He's been raised from the dead. We have a message that is true and real. It involves, it encourages us to be involved in ministry, to sacrifice yourself. That's why we do Fox Road Elementary. And we try to, please don't fall prey to this idea that the world is just going into a handbag. Don't, don't fall prey to that. People call this kind of a, a lifeboat theology. We look at the world, and Paul Marshall writes about this. We look at the world as the Titanic. It's sinking, we've struck the iceberg. Just, just save people off the boat. Get them in the lifeboats, don't worry about it. We can't save the boat, it's finished, it's done. I don't think that's a true theology. Because God isn't going to destroy the world like, yeah, I can't do anything with it, it's just beyond repair. We're going to go ahead and start out with something. No, no, God's going to renew all things. And so there's this continuity that we're to see in the ministry that we have here is going to have an effect there. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, always, brothers, sisters, be steadfast and movable. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor of the Lord is not in vain. In other words, he's saying there's a continuity there. There's kind of, it's, not a, 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 it's not a lifeboat theology, it's an ark theology. He lifts them up, but he brings them back down. And the earth is going to be renewed. So, so seeing, beholding Christ is going to move you to want to engage in this world, not to consider it beyond repair, but to invest your lives in it, to declare the redemptive message of the gospel. And then last, beholding Christ will change your view of the church. You know, Jesus Christ said that I will build my church. We are the colony of heaven. We are the outpost of glory. We are the ones declaring the wisdom of God. And we are the ones that are to gather together to listen to him. How do we listen to him? We listen to him as gathering hearing the word, broken and distributed to us, that we might be fed and go out. This is Paul's idea in Colossians 1.28 when it says, Him we proclaim, teaching with all wisdom, so that everyone might be presented perfect in Christ. The perfection, the strengthening comes from this broken word that we share together that you can now fellowship with over. You can speak about, encourage one another with. So, beholding Christ as he's revealed himself, is going to change us. I know in your mind you're thinking, well, if I would have seen a glimpse of that glory, I'd do the same thing these three did. But you don't need to see it to be changed. Jesus only took three. If they needed to see it, he would have taken 12. He didn't. He took three, and through their witness, 
That's all we need. Beholding Christ is now by faith. There isn't, I don't want you to think of some new thing we've got to do. It's through the normal means of grace. Reading the scriptures, praying, worshiping, engaging other believers with the truths that you're learning. This is how we are changed from glory to glory. So let, let me just stop there. We've got a beautiful revelation of the Son. He's the divine king. He's the wonderful savior. He is the preeminent son. Beholding him, considering him, thinking about him is going to change us incrementally. So let's take a moment, if we can, just in silent reflection. This is where you will be led to confess, perhaps, or give thankfulness to God on what he's doing, or even asking grace to help that you might behold him in greater measure.